Well, Revelation chapter 1, as we continue our study through the book of Revelation, you know, uh, we are teaching this book because there is this rumor going around. There are those who are saying that the book of Revelation is But au contraire, (laughs) hard to understand, but au contraire, say we, for you see, the word revelation itself means that something has been revealed. revealed. Absolutely. If God wanted to conceal something, he would have called it the concealation, not the revelation. So what is it that's revealed in this book? Well, Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, the opening line says the revelation of Jesus Christ. And what we're going to find in this book is that Jesus is going to be revealed in this book, not as we saw him 2,000 years ago, but as he is now and in his eternal glorified state. And we'll be talking about that as we go. But God so wanted his people to read this book that he promised that for those who would take the time to read this book, that they would receive a very special blessing, blessing which is found in Revelation chapter 1, verse Let's look at it. Revelation chapter 1, verse 3. It says, Blessed is he who reads. This is the only time in your Bible where it ever says, Blessed is he who reads. This is the only book of the Bible that says, Read me, I'm special. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy, this prophecy, and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. So it would be very hard for me, hard for us to believe in a God who says, I'll bless you if you read it. I want you to hear it. I want you to heed it. But here's the thing. You'll never understand it. It'd be hard for us to believe in a God who would treat his people in that way. But God knew that there'd be those going around saying that the book of Revelation is hard to understand. So to make sure that we understood this book, God placed in this book its very own outline, which is found in Revelation chapter 1, verse 19. Absolutely. Let's look at it. This is the only book of the Bible that comes with its own outline. John is told, he says, therefore write the things which you have seen. That will be the first division. And then the things which are, that will be the second part. And then the things which will take place after these things. It'll be the three divisions in the book of Revelation. So the first division, he says, write the things that you have seen. So the question is, what is it that John has seen up to this point? Well, he's seen Jesus in his resurrected, glorified state. Verse 13, it says, In the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like the Son of Man. And it goes on to give this incredible description, indescribable description of Jesus as he is now. That's what John has seen. Then it says, Write the things which are. Now, the things which are will pertain to the time period that you and I will call the church age. And that will be found in Revelation chapters two and three. Jesus is going to dictate seven letters to seven churches. These churches literally exist. What he writes to these churches is actually taking place. But because he says the words of this prophecy, these churches are actually part of the prophecy. And what we will find and have been seeing is that these churches in their order lay out 2,000 years of church history with incredible precision. If you change any of the order of any of the churches, it makes no sense. But in their order, they lay out 2,000 years of church history. So then he says, write the things which will take place after these things. Well, after what things? Well, after the things that are, chapters 2 and 3, the church age. So when will we find the phrase, after these things again? Well, that's found in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. Chapter 4, verse 1. Let's look at it. 
Uh, after the church age, John says, after these things, you want to underline that if you haven't already, after these things, I look, John says, and behold, a, a door standing open in heaven, the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me said, come up here and I will show you what must take place. That's important when it says must take place. It's not going to change. It's actually going to happen. Must take place after these things. So the Holy Spirit is so concerned that we understand that this is the third division in the book of Revelation, that he begins the verse with after these things, and he ends the verse with after these things, so we don't miss it. So this is going to be uh, a picture of what you and I are going to call the rapture of the church, and we'll study that when we get there. John looks up, he sees a door standing open in heaven, a voice like a trumpet says, come up here, and immediately John is in the spirit before the throne, and what we find as we get there, the entire church is there before the throne. So one of the things that we we will notice is that although the word church is going to be mentioned over 20 times in the first three chapters of of Revelation, from chapter 4, verse 1, to the end of the book, there's going to be one word that's going to be glaringly absent, and that is the word church. And the reason being is that the church is no longer part of the story, at least not on the ground. Now, at the end of the book of Revelation, you've heard me say in the last paragraph, the word church appears again, but not part of the story. Jesus says, I wanted to reveal these things to the churches. So the church goes up, chapter 4, verse 1, and then what comes down? Wrath. And that is found in Revelation chapter 6, verse 16. This is the opening volley of that time period that's known as the tribulation. It's a seven-year time period. We'll study it when we get there. But chapter 6, verse 16, it says, So they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne, that's God the Father, and from the wrath of the Lamb. And in the Bible, the Lamb is always a picture of Jesus. He's always referred to as the Lamb. And you've heard me say, and I'll say as we, we go through this, that, that in our church culture, we're very comfortable with the Jesus who kisses the babies and says, be nice to people. But we're very uncomfortable with the Jesus who says, I've given you grace. I, I want to give you salvation, relationship, my Holy Spirit. But there comes a time when those who reject that uh, experience his wrath that is going to be in the future, in the future, poured out on a world that has rejected him. And so we'll talk about that when we get there. Let me say this, that in that time period of the tribulation, it will be the greatest time of revival the world has ever seen. So many, many people will be coming to the Lord in that time. Well, I want to go back to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, we have been working through these seven churches. And uh, one of the things that I've said is that Jesus will dictate seven letters to seven churches. These are literal churches. What he writes about these churches is actually taking place in that church. But what we notice is that in their order, they lay out 2,000 years of church history with incredible precision. And again, if you switch the order, it makes absolutely no sense. But in their order, they lay out 2,000 years of church history. So I like to begin with the map. And uh, Jesus dictates these seven letters to these seven churches. And uh, these churches are all in order. And they were in the area that was known as Asia in those days. Today we would say Turkey. It's modern day Turkey. And you'll remember the first church that Jesus wrote the letter to or dictated the letter to was Ephesus. 
Ephesus just means desirable, we would say darling. It was a very special time in church history as the church began. And he had to write to them and says, you know, you're doing great, but you've lost your first love. You need to come back to your first love. We took a week and we talked about that. Shortly after that, uh, he writes to Smyrna. And uh, Smyrna, the word just means myrrh. Myrrh is an embalming spice that prepares the body for, for burial. Well, when we read the church of Smyrna, Jesus talked about that you know, some of you, many of you are going to die. And it was a, a, it was a letter of death and suffering. And we talked about how the church went through 250 years of very intense persecution. And that Jesus said to that church, be, be faithful, just be faithful unto death. And there's no promise of escaping that. But then the church became the official religion of the Roman Empire. And so we talked about the church of Pergamum or Pergamus. And uh, some of your Bibles will say it a little bit differently, Pergamum or Pergamus. And Pergamus just means a mixed marriage. And what takes place in that time period, when the church becomes the official religion of the empire, the church marries uh, wrongly, we would say, paganism. And in that week, we talked about how as uh, the church begins to marry the world, the, the church begins to take things like pagan holidays. For instance, we talked about how uh, the queen of heaven, her name was Ishtar, uh, Ashtar from another language, and uh, how she was also the goddess of fertility. So you would celebrate her with the symbols of fertility, bunnies and eggs and things like that. And so the church, as it becomes the official religion, begins to celebrate bringing in the queen of heaven. Her name is Ishtar. And so we began to celebrate Ishtar or Easter with the symbols of fertility like bunnies and eggs. And it's a very sad time in church history. And so Jesus had to tell that church, you know, you need to come back to God's word. Well, after that, last week, we talked about the church of Thyatira. And that church, in about the 600s AD, the church began to make another shift and began to focus in on a woman. And many of you come from a church that has this background. And they think that she's one thing, but Jesus says she's something very, very different. And uh, he, he, he calls her Jezebel. And so last week we were here and we talked about how if you come from a Roman Catholic background, you might be offended by some of the things that we talk about as we talk about the church that focused in on a woman and uh, because it was all about that. But, but I said last week, and I want to say it again, and this is especially important for those of you who come from a church background like I do. There, there's two things that you need to know about this church. First of all, Jesus calls this church that's focusing in on a woman, he calls it a church. And, and so don't forget that. And then in Revelation chapter 2, verse 20, if you look at that real quick, as he's talking about the church as they're focusing in on the woman, and he has some strong things to say about that, he says, I have this against you that you tolerate the woman Jezebel. She's not who you think she is, who calls herself a prophetess, and she, she teaches and leads my bond servants astray. And I want you to underline bond servants if you didn't do that last week, because Jesus says, says it's still a church and they're still my bondservants. They're led astray. There's some things that they're following, but they're still my bondservants. And that's important for people who come from a church background like, like I do. And Jesus said there's some great things about that church. And we talked about that last week. Uh, nobody has ever uh, done what the Catholic church has done as far as uh, holding to marriage, 
fighting against abortion, building colleges and hospitals, orphanages. They've done some great things. And Jesus highlights that. He says, you've done some great, great things. So um, we talked about last week how you might be uh, a little bit offended last week, but then we say come back this week uh, if you were offended by some of the things that we talked about, uh, because this week you're going to feel a little bit better. So um, those of you who come from that background are going to feel a little bit better, um, but I need to say this. Um, two things. First of all, when we get into this, there's always so much more than we could talk about in just a few minutes. So I'm going to give you enough that you go, okay, I, I get the big picture, but there's a lot, lot, lot more. Um, the other thing that I need to say <laughs> is that God never tries to be politically correct. When he gives prophecies, he says, this is how it is. And so sometimes that can be offensive. And so uh, consider some of the things that we talk about today. It's not intended to be in, in offensive, just to, to shed some, some light. So here as the church is focusing in on the woman, and it was a picture of the Catholic church, and, and it, again, it's laying out 2,000 years of church history. Um, there comes, as you look at the church and you go through a couple of hundred years uh, some things are, are, are taking place, and, and uh, I, I wanted to read just a couple of things and go through a couple of hundred years very, very quickly um, of, of what's taking place, just to let you know that what we're going to talk about today didn't take place in one generation or in one decade, but things are developing over the course of several hundred years. So whether you read, and, and this is my, my seminary book of church history, and what I like about this is sometimes when you get a church history book, it's written by evangelical believers. That's good. Uh, but this is a book that's written by academicians. They, they're not evangelical. They're not Catholic. They're just historians is the idea. So they don't have an ax to grind. But it talks about as you get into the 900s, it says the most scandalous period of the papacy was undoubtedly, and it talks about the 900s. So some of the things that went on, I won't read them all, but just one. Uh, at the age of 16, under the name of John Twelfth, Octavian ascended to the papal throne. So here you have in the 900s, you have a kid who's 16, and it becomes the pope of the church because his parents purchased the position. And, and so when that takes place, many Catholic priests begin to look on and say, what in the world is, is happening here? Well, you go a few hundred years into the future, you get into the 1300s, and there's a man named John Wycliffe. How many of you have ever heard of the Wycliffe Bible Translators? So, so John Wycliffe, John Wycliffe is a Catholic priest. He has a doctorate of theology. He's a professor at Oxford, and he's reading his Bible, and he's teaching at the college and, and the teachings of the church. And he says, you know, these two things aren't, aren't lining up. So he begins to teach, and he says the, the main points were, he says, I don't believe that the church should be allowed to take people's property. And we talked about that last week. That was going on. Another thing that he said is that Scripture needs to be the highest authority, not the Pope. And uh, that was very offensive to the church at that time. And then he felt that we need to translate the Bible into the language that people understand. At that time, it was only in Latin. So he wanted to translate from the Latin Vulgate into English. Well, he passes away in uh, 1384, but he has, a, uh, he has a student, and the student's name is John Huss. And John Huss takes the teaching of Wycliffe, and uh, he continues on. He says, you know, the, the Bible should be our authority, uh, and uh, we, we should, we should uh, be able to, you know, the Pope shouldn't take our property, and goes on and, and, and just says the highest authority, you know, is the Bible. And so he runs afoul of the, the Roman church, and so they arrest him, they charge him with heresy, and he won't recant. 
And so because he won't recant, the church has him burned at the stake. So a very, very sad thing that, that took place. So, and that happens in, um, I have the, the date later. <laughs> so, so they burn him at the stake. And then they say, we're, we're so angry. We know that your teaching came from Wycliffe. And so the church, a few de- decades after Wycliffe uh, is, passes away, they dig up his bones and they burn them until they turn to ashes and they throw them into the, the river. They, they showed him. So, uh, so it's at this time, and I'll keep saying that Catholic priests begin to look on at what's going on in the church and they go, this should not be. We, we represent Jesus and we should not be doing this to people. Well, you go a few hundred years into the future, the late 1400s, and you have these guys, and they would be known as reformers. And uh, one of the reformers, and I'll just read you one, his name is Martin Luther. You'll know uh, from the, the Lutherans. And so Martin Luther is born on November 10th, 1483, in Islam, I'm probably mispronouncing that, where his father worked as a copper miner. He grows up, he's very intellectual, he goes to college, he gets a bachelor's degree, and then he gets a master of arts in, in, in uh, liberal arts, and, uh, and, and so he's doing good, he decides he's going to go to law school. So he goes to law school, but while he's in law school, he's only there about six weeks, and it says he was profoundly moved by the sudden death of a classmate and by a narrow escape from, the lightning, uh, from lightning while returning to Erfurt from a trip home. As, the result, as a result, he made a vow to St. Anne to become a monk. So he joins the monastery. He joins the Augustinian order, which was very different than many of the other orders. They focused in on preaching and Bible study. So he becomes a monk. And so it says in the monastic life, uh, Luther won speedy recognition and was ordained to the priesthood in 1507. So he's, he's got a master's degree, now he becomes a priest. And then it goes on, so he goes to Wittenberg, the university, graduated with a Bachelor of Theology in 1509, so that's good. Stays there at Wittenberg, and then he becomes a Doctor of Theology in 1512. Now I'm telling you this just to let you know, he, this guy's read some books, and he's, he's very, very academic. He's a monk, he's a priest, he has a doctorate in theology, and he becomes a professor there at the Wittenberg University. So he's there, and it says Luther found, although all of this, he's a monk, a priest, a doctor of theology, professor, Luther found no peace of soul. His sense of sinfulness before a holy God and righteous God overwhelmed him, and he was not relieved, but only aggravated by the practice of penance and of ascetic works. And so when you read his story, you'll find that the penance that he would do to relieve himself of the guilt is he would whip himself and beat himself. He would stay out in the snow all night long and sleep out there. And uh, he would fast extendedly, hoping to get rid of that feeling of, of sinfulness. So over the course of time, he has to make a trip to Rome. He goes to Rome. And as he's there, he becomes very sick. So being sick, they say, well, you need to go stay over here at this monastery and, and you need to recuperate. So he goes to the monastery. He's recuperating there in Rome. And there's this elderly monk. And he sees something very different in this monk. And he says, he just lays out, I just always feel so sinful. I can never get rid of that feeling, just feeling so sinful. And the monk says, you need to read the book of Habakkuk. He said, well, I never thought of such a thing. So he reads the book of Habakkuk. And as he's reading the book of Habakkuk, he comes across the, the verse in Habakkuk 2.4, which just says, the just shall live by faith. And it stuns him. The just shall live by faith. And he can't shake it. 
Well, he goes back to Wittenberg. He's there and he begins to teach. And uh, again, he's got a doctorate in theology, but he has to teach the book of Romans. So as he's going through the book of Romans, uh, he realizes that my church teaches me this, but my Bible says this. And so as time goes on, it says, by the time that Luther lectured on Romans, he had become convinced that salvation is a new relationship to God based not on any human work or merit, but on the absolute trust in the divine promise of forgiveness for Christ's sake. He began teaching that the sinner is justified, accepted, acquitted, forgiven before God by faith alone, and it's by absolute dependence on and trust in the gospel of free forgiveness. So it's something that God gives you. You can't earn it by doing penance and and things like that. So as he does this, one of the things that we find is that as Luther is coming to these conclusions, there's other men who are also saying we want to reform within the Catholic Church. They don't want to separate, they want to reform within. And so they were called reformers. But Luther, at a certain point, he writes what's called the 95 Theses, and uh, these theses are, he, he says that the church should not be allowed to take property. You shouldn't be selling penance. We should have the Bible as our only authority. And he goes on and he nails those to the Wittenberg church. And, uh, and so because of that, he's labeled as a protester, and being labeled as a protester, they called him a protestant. And uh, we don't say protestant anymore, we say protestant. Protestant. And so if you are a Protestant, you come from those who protested, not seeking to separate, but, but to reform the things within the church. Well, that didn't happen, and so Luther then uh, separates. Now, um, did you find that at least interesting? Yes. Good, good. Um, and you, you, you know, as a, as a believer, you should read some of these stories to know where you come from and how did we get here? You know, why do we believe some of these things? I encourage you to, to do that. So, we're going to begin reading about the church that comes out of the church that's been focusing in on the woman. And uh, this is kind of a speed study here today. So verse 1 of chapter 3, Jesus says, To the angel of the church in Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God, and I've underlined seven spirits of God and the seven stars, says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, I've underlined name, that you are alive, but you are dead. And we're going to talk about that. So this church is going to be called the Reformation Church. And it's going to begin at the time known as the Reformation in the 1500s. And it's going to last until what we would call the rapture of the church. The name of the church is Sardis. Now, when you take the name Sardis and you begin to break that down, there's different ways that you can, you can uh, interpret this. One way is the, is the word remnant, and I put that there on your outline. That's a good thing, and I think that that holds true for this church. But another way uh, you can translate this word is renovation. Does everybody see that? So what I want you to do today, just for fun, go home, bring up a Word document, write renovation, and then right-click and go to where it says synonyms, and what you'll find is one of the synonyms for renovation is reformation. And so I want you to write down uh, renovation, but we would say reformation. And this is going to pertain to what we call the Reformation Church. And then Jesus gives a title of himself. Now, every church, Jesus gives a title of himself, and it's always something that that church needs to be reminded of. So, for instance, when we talked about Smyrna, uh, which was the suffering church, the title that he gave of himself was, I was dead, 
but now I'm alive. And they needed to know that death didn't stop him and that they weren't the first ones to suffer. So every, every title has, has importance to that church. But here, the title that Jesus gives of himself as he speaks to this church, he says, I'm the one who has the seven spirits of God. Now, that might throw some of us, but the Bible always interprets the Bible. That comes from the Old Testament book, the uh, book of Isaiah. And uh, so let me just show you how this works. I always like to count. We're going to count the seven spirits of God. It's actually going to be a reference to the Holy Spirit. So the spirit of the Lord, that's one, shall rest upon him. The spirit of, number two, wisdom, and three, understanding. The spirit of four, counsel, and five, might. The spirit of knowledge, six, and of the, number seven, fear of the Lord. Seven is, in, in the Bible, is always the number of completion. Uh, some would say perfection, but completion is, is probably more accurate. So here you have the seven characteristics of the Holy Spirit. When Jesus writes this to the church, what we find is the solution that this church needs, and you want to write this down, is going to be part of the solution is going to be the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Um, One of the things that the church that came out, the Reformation church, which you'll find by and large, not exclusively, but by and large, is there's not an emphasis on the Holy Spirit. How many of you have ever been to a church and they won't even talk about the Holy Spirit, gifts, empowerings, or things like that? Well, that comes from this church background. I have some friends who are pastors in this type of church, wonderful people, um, but but they refer to themselves as God's chosen frozen or frozen chosen. How many of you have ever heard that term? And and they're very upfront. We're, We're the chosen frozen, the frozen chosen. So the, this church needs what we would say is a dose of the, the Holy Spirit. And uh, it's a reminder of that, that he has that. Now, last week, I mentioned that we picked on the Catholics. And uh, as this church focused in on a woman, but they did some great things. They, you know, stand against abortion, the for, mar- for marriage and, um, you know, just for family and just some really good things. And so there was a commendation that they did some good things. Each church has a commendation. Here's what you got right. But when it comes to this church, what we're going to find is that the commendation, and I want you to write this down, the commendation is none. There's no commendation. So keep that in mind as we go, as we uncover some things. So there's some criticism to this church. And uh, the last part of verse 1, he says, I know your deeds, that you have a name, and you want to underline the word name, that you are alive, but you're dead. How's that for encouragement? So, so here, here's part of the problem. They think they are alive, but they're dead. And you want to write that down. They think they're alive, but they're dead. He says, you have a name that you're alive, but, but you're dead. Now, the word name there, I put there on your outline. In Greek, the word is anoma, anoma. It's where we get our English word name. And uh, what's interesting about that word Anoma, that is the word in the Greek that we get our English word, denoma nation, denoma nation. So you want to write that down. So, so that's going to be important for our study. And this word, anoma or denomination, comes from both the Latin nomen or the Greek word anoma, same thing. So that's where that word comes from. If you go to Webster's Dictionary, 
the word denomination comes into the English language in the 1500s. But it comes from that. So it's, it's you have a name. So they're pointing to the name, but not necessarily their relationship with the Lord. So here's how it works. And uh, see, see if this makes sense to you. Have you ever gone to somebody and you begin talking to them about their relationship with the Lord, and they don't tell you about their relationship with the Lord, they say, oh, I'm a Lutheran, I'm a Presbyterian, I'm a Baptist. And they point to a name, but they don't point to a relationship with the Lord. So we have an acquaintance in our family, and um, this, this family has not been to church in 30 years, maybe for an Easter or Christmas, you know, a couple of times in the past 30 years. So Cheryl's talking with them and says, well, you know, why don't you think about coming out to church? And the father says, oh, we're Lutherans, we're Lutherans. As though, as though that, you know, I'm not just picking up, many people in different denominations, they, they point to the denomination and that's who they are. As though you die, you go to heaven and you're standing before Jesus and he's going to the book of life. Now, where is that name that you have here and can't seem to find it? And you go, oh, wait a minute, I'm Lutheran. I'm Presbyterian. He's why didn't you say so? Obviously. So the idea is they're pointing to the name, but not pointing to the relationship. And for many of them, they don't realize how dead they are as they point to that. Does that make sense? And, and that's not, you know, Lutherans, Presbyterians. It's, it's just about any, any group will, you'll find people that do that. So the criticism continues. And in verse two, he says, um, wake up and strengthen the things which remain which are about to die, and here's the criticism, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. Now, in the, the first part of that verse, it says, my translation says, wake up, but how many of your Bibles say watch? Watch. That's a better translation, the word watch, and we'll talk about that. But he says, you know, I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. I put that on your outline. Not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So whatever they did was good. They just didn't go far enough. They didn't complete what they started. And, and uh, so there on your outline, I put, um, if you have the NA, New American or NIV, it'll say something like wake up. But if you have the King James version or New King James, it'll say be watchful. And that's more accurate. If you uh, have a literal translation, it will say become watching. I put that on your outline. So we're going to notice that they're supposed to be watching for something, and they're not watching. And you want to write that down, they're not watching. So you didn't finish what you started, and you're not watching. And so here's the exhortation, verses 3 and 4. He says, so remember what you have received. They've received something, and it was good, and heard, and keep it and repent. Now, this is the part you don't want to miss. Therefore, if you do not... Now, my Bible says wake up. How many of your Bibles say Watch. So if you do not watch, I will come, underline, like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. So we'll talk about that. So he says, remember what you've received. So what did the reformers receive? Well, uh, very quickly, this is the short list. The re reformers received what they called sola scriptura, which just means scripture alone. And you want to write that down, scripture alone. We look to that. All scriptures inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, correction, for training in righteousness. And which led to their understanding of sola fide, which is just a faith alone. You come to Jesus by faith. Through whom we've also obtained our introduction by faith. 
into this grace in which we stand and we exult, we exult in the hope and the glory of God. So they would say, no organization can tell you that you're saved. You come to Jesus by faith. And then that led them to what's called sola gracia. And people say that a little bit differently, but it just means grace alone, grace alone. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it's the gift of God. So they said, you know, when you're saved, it's because of what he did for you. He, he gave you his grace. And you bring nothing to the table. You can't earn it. You can't keep it. You, you came to him, and he gave that because of his grace. It's a wonderful understanding of salvation. But we notice that they didn't go far enough. So what, what is it, as they reformed some of the teachings, what is it that the reformers never reformed? Well, what you notice is that the reformers never reformed the study of Bible prophecy in times uh, or their eschatology. They, they, they never looked at that. When you study church history, what you find is that before 313 AD, all Christians believed that Jesus was going to come back literally and he was going to set up his kingdom on the earth. Well, Constantine becomes the emperor and he becomes the head of the church. And he makes the church the official religion of the Roman Empire. And so the emperors, the kings, they loved Christianity, but this whole teaching of you know, one day Jesus comes back and he sets up his kingdom and there's no other kingdoms but Jesus. And they become very uncomfortable with that. Jesus comes back, I lose my kingdom. So in the 300s, what takes place is Origen, who was one of the early fathers of the faith, a godly man, but he began to look at scripture and he began to allegorize some of these things. Well, maybe this is a spiritual message. Maybe it's not a literal message. And, and, and so they didn't look at it literally. And then Augustine comes along and he says, well, you know, Jesus did say, my kingdom's not of this earth. So maybe those passages aren't really about Jesus coming back and setting up his kingdom. And then they would say, after all, if Jesus were to come back and do this literally, then Israel would have to become a nation again. Israel is the only nation on the planet in the history of the world who existed as a nation, ceased to exist as a nation, and then became a nation again. And that, that means something, and we've talked about that. So when you get to Revelation chapter 19, and we'll study it when we get there, it's called the second coming, and Jesus comes back, and it says he sets up his kingdom, and he has it for a thousand years. He'll reign for a thousand years, and this will happen for a thousand years. And he says a thousand years, and he says it seven times. We look on at that and say, if you're saying it's a thousand years and you say it seven times, it's because you don't want us to miss it, that you're emphasizing the fact that it's a thousand years. But this church, the Catholic Church also, and the Reformed Church, they hold to what's called a millennialism, no millennium. That is that the thousand years is just allegorical, it's spiritual, but it's not literal. We look on and say, it's literal, it's actually going to happen. So you see this divide. The Reformed Church and the Catholic, they, tell, they hold to what's called the amillennial view that there's no actual thousand years. You should read Revelation chapter 19. It's, it's fascinating. So what is the specific result of not completing the work? Well, I put verse 3 here on your outline. And he says, I'm reading this from the King James, if therefore you will not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know 
what hour I will come upon thee. So Jesus is going to come upon this church and they're not watching. And so write this down, not watching, they will be surprised at his coming because it's not even part of their thinking. In order to watch for something, uh, you have to know what you're watching for. Does that make sense? You got to know. And so this year, as we've seen certain things take place, we've been looking at Bible prophecy to say this is what you want to watch for. It was in Matthew 24, a passage that we've gone to many times this year. The disciples come to Jesus, and I put this there in your outline, and it says, as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. This is going to be a private briefing, saying, tell us when will these things happen? What will be the sign, you want to underline sign, of your coming and of the end of the age? They had rightfully paired his coming with the end of the age. And I want you to notice that Jesus doesn't say, don't worry about that, it's not important, it all pans out in the end, you know, we win in the end, that's all that really matters. What Jesus says is, there on your outline, Jesus answered and said to them, see to it, see to it, that no one misleads you. The idea is I'm going to tell you, but then you're responsible, you're supposed to know this. And then he talks about, he says, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there shall be famines and pestilences, underline pestilences, and earthquakes in diverse places, but all these things are merely the beginning of birth pains. So Jesus says it's going to be like birth pains. You have, when a woman gets pregnant, there's a very long pregnancy, and then at a certain point, labor kicks in, and when labor kicks in, all of a sudden those birth pains become closer and closer together and more and more intense. And he says, that's how it's going to be. At a certain point, this is going to kick in and it's going to get more and more intense. So he talks about famines and pestilences. In our lifetime, we have never seen the world shut down by a pestilence. And yet we're seeing that. That is a birth pain, the Bible would tell us. They're going to become more and more intense. And then we we talked about natural disasters and hurricanes and things like that. Do you know we've gone through the entire English alphabet for hurricanes and we're almost halfway through the Greek alphabet? I can't tell you the last time that I remember that taking place, but these things are happening and they become more and more intense. Then it says, nation shall rise against nation. And what's interesting there, if you looked at that 500 years ago, you would translate it as nation rise against nation. But the Greek word, and I put it there in your outline, is ethnos, ethnos. And so you're going to have ethnic groups rising against ethnic groups, races rising against races. The idea is about the time you feel like you got this thing figured out, it erupts again. Would you agree that this year in the midst of a pestilence, we've seen ethnos rise against ethnos? And it doesn't get better. It continues on. So this church that we're talking about, they're going to be surprised at his coming. And the reason they're surprised is because they don't look at Bible prophecy, so they don't say when they see this, these are the birth pains that Jesus talked about, because it's not even on their radar. So in times like this, this is not bashing, and so uh, hear me to the end before you throw things at me. Um, They have to teach on things like, it's in these difficult times that we find our purpose. You know, all this, we go through these difficult times because it gets better and greater things are ahead for us. And, and, but the Bible says that's not how it's going to be. 
And so, but if you don't look at Bible prophecy, uh, you have to explain it somehow. But they can't say this is a birth pain because they don't even look at Bible prophecy. So again, uh, not watching, they will be surprised when he comes. Now, it's not saying that they're not saved. You need to hear that. It's not saying they're not saved. It's just saying you're going to be surprised when I come because you're not watching and, and you won't watch for that. So if you come from a church that does not talk about Bible prophecy, and this is all brand new to you, and the rapture happens and you're confused, don't you worry. We'll explain it on the way up. So just uh, <laughs> verse 4. Now I'm going to read verse 4 on your outline. Thou hast a few names. I, I put it on your outline because some of your Bibles will say peoples, but it's names. Even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they're worthy. So they're, they're going to be surprised at his coming because they're not looking at it, but they're still saved. They're still believers. And uh, again, that word is a gnome. It means name. Verses 5 and 6. And again, Jesus isn't saying they're not saved, just that they're, they're, you know, they're going to be surprised. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name, that's a noma, from the book of life. And I will confess his name, a noma, before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So Jesus says, I, I'm going to confess his name before my father, um, they're going to be surprised at my coming, but I'm still going to confess their name before my father. Just because they're surprised doesn't mean that they're, they're not saved. And then the final thing there, and, and uh, we, we don't really have the time, but, but he who has an ear to hear, let him hear. So if you come from a church background like that that does not deal with Bible prophecy, um, you, you need to plunge into this because he says you need to be watching, but you can't watch if you don't know what to watch for. And so we talk about that here. Did you find that interesting today? Yes. Good, good. All right. You can applaud. I think that's my mom. But So the next two weeks, as, as we lay out church history, is going to become even more clear as we go. You don't want to miss that. And uh, so let's go ahead and close in prayer, and we'll pick it up next week. Father, as we wrap this up today, Lord, we want to be those that you don't have to remind that you have the Holy Spirit. Lord, we do want to know about your empowering, your giftedness, your, your working, your flowing, all that you have that you want to do in us as uh, our spirit and your spirit participate together and accomplish some great things in this time as you use us in this time. Lord, we don't want to be those who do not watch for the things that you've laid out. And uh, Lord, we know that those who aren't watching, they're still yours, and that's, that's, that's good, that's good. And so, but we want to be those who are watching. And Lord, as we see the words of this prophecy, a unified prophecy, as you lay out these things through church history, that you reveal to us who we need to be and how we need to be in this time, especially as we get into the next two weeks. Father, I pray that you keep each and every one of us until we meet again prayerfully in the new facility uh, and keep us till we meet again there. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray and all God's people said, amen. amen.